Well, good morning, everybody, again. Uh, today, we're going to continue looking through uh, Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, we're going to be in verses 18 through, uh, through 24 today, verses 18 through 24. And here we see our author, uh, again, be it Paul or Priscilla and Aquila or whoever else, um, whomever else, English, it's a hard language, whatever, um, writes uh, to us and compares, uses the comparisons of Mount Sinai and Mount Zion to compare the law and grace. So let's read it. Hebrews 12, 18 through 24. It reads, For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet, and the sound of words which sound was such that those who heard begged no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible is the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Number one on your note sheet there. Old versus new. Old versus new. So let's talk about these two mountains. Mount Sinai is a real mountain. It's on the Sinai Peninsula, which is the peninsula between uh, Egypt and the Middle East. Okay? If you look at a map, that's where we're looking right now. It's where the Israelites crossed when they went from Egypt to the Promised Land. And there was a mountain, Mount Sinai. This is where the Ten Commandments are given, and it's mentioned in both Exodus 19.2 and Exodus 24.16, as well as some other places. And when they come to this mountain, they see it's enveloped in a cloud, it quaked, it was filled with smoke and lightning and thunder. God himself had descended upon this mountain. Now, God is everywhere, right? We believe he's omnipresent. But he had put his presence there in a way that showed just a glimpse. It wasn't even fully, just a glimpse of who he was. And we read here, right, that they are scared. Moses trembles. He's afraid. Moses has talked to God personally multiple times. And he's terrified in this moment when he sees this mountain. Again, it's where the Ten Commandments are given, where the basis of what we call the law is laid down, right? Nowadays in the law, there are over 400, almost 500 different commandments or rules. Have all of them been given by God? No. A lot of them, most of them actually, were made by the different priests and stuff like that, sometimes to try to help Israel, quite frankly, most of the time so they could gain more power. That's the nature of it. But this is where the basis of the law was laid out, as we see later in Deuteronomy uh, and, and Leviticus, um, or flip that, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you know, um, where we see this. And, and this is where God says, these are the rules. You have to follow these rules. You want any semblance of righteousness at all. You have to follow these rules, right? We all know the Ten Commandments, like the back of our hand. We don't follow them like we know them, like the back of our hand. Non-Christians know the Ten Commandments, right? In fact, 
most of the basic laws of society are based on the Ten Commandments. So, you know, don't steal, don't murder, that sort of stuff. That's in the Ten Commandments. So this mountain makes men fearful. Because here's the thing, I just mentioned it. You and I cannot achieve righteousness through the law or through works of the law. There's not a chance in heaven, on earth, in hell, anywhere that you and I could achieve righteousness by the law. The law, quite frankly, makes us hopeless. Because if that was the basis by which our salvation was, there wouldn't be a single human in heaven. Not a single, Jesus would be there. That's it. Because none of us can achieve the righteousness based upon the law. We break it all the time. Contrast that then to Mount Zion. Now, Mount Zion is not a mountain in the same way that Sinai is. Sinai, of course, is a literal mountain that you could go and visit today. It's there. It's no longer quaking and filled with lightning and smoke and thunder and such, but you can go see this mountain. Mount Zion is two things. In the Old Testament, it was, it was the name given to three different areas in successive uh, time periods. First, it was the city of David. Then it was just the Temple Mount. Then it was the Western Hill in Jerusalem. All three have been called Mount Zion throughout history. In the New Testament, Mount Zion is a metaphor for God's eternal city. We see it written here, the eternal city, the heavenly Jerusalem. It's the city in heaven. It's where God sits enthroned in heaven. In contrast to Mount Zion, the throne room in heaven, we don't have to be afraid of because of Christ. Because of grace that flows through it. Mount Sinai creates fear and trembling. Mount Zion creates hope and love and grace. There's still fear and trembling, but not fear and trembling in the same way. Right? So we see that we have this contrast. And our author then says, now let me talk to you about the law and about grace. So number one was old versus new. Does anyone want to guess what number two is as well? It's old versus new. Church, the law has given way to grace. Am I saying, let's get this out of the way off the jump. Am I saying you do not have to follow the rules anymore and you can do whatever you want to? Should we sin all the more so that grace may abound? Let it never be so. Right? Just because we're not under the law anymore does not mean that we should not follow the Ten Commandments. Right? They still apply. Now, what's your answer to the person that goes, well, you know, in Leviticus it says to sell my daughter into slavery. Hmm? Should we still do that? Hmm? Should we? Huh? No, you idiot. <sighs> Sorry. I got a little bit upset at myself there. Just hearing myself say it. No, you see, what happens with the Old Testament now and with the law is that the principle still applies. You should not murder people. It is still wrong to take a life like that. It is still wrong to steal. It is still wrong to covet. We no longer have to follow the letter of the law. Leviticus and Deuteronomy, I can eat bacon. I had it this morning. And I'm not, amen. And I'm not going to hell for it. 
I might have to go to the hospital, but not hell. Right? We don't have to follow that stuff anymore. You can eat pork. You can eat various things. Right? That's the part of the law that we, we turn to a lot because it makes the most sense to us uh, in contrast. So we follow the principle of the law, not necessarily the letter of it anymore. So no, it is not a sin if you have not sold your daughter into slavery. And no, we do not have to stone people and stuff like that anymore. We are, however, under grace. This kind of gets into something, we call it dispensations. I am a dispensationalist. It means I believe that there are separate and distinct ages or dispensations throughout history. We are in the church age right now, the age of the church. That will end at the rapture. The church age ends at the rapture. Why? He takes the church out of earth. The Old Testament was during a different dispensation when he dealt with Israel. The dispensations are basically how does God deal with people on earth? He's dealing in the age of grace with the age of the church right now. Church, I'm here to tell you this morning, not a single person in some 2,000 years has seen the true wrath of God in any way, shape, or form. He's holding it back. Read Revelation. There's a lot of wrath of God that happens in that book. But he's dealing with people in grace. That is not to say he does not discipline. That is not to say he is not still working. He's working differently. He's not going to send a flood that wipes out the earth. COVID was not God's punishment on earth for something. It just wasn't. Sorry. Any other disease that's happened. The bubonic plague back in the Middle Ages was not God's judgment on Europe. It's not how he's working now. He works through grace. Through Jesus Christ saying, come to me. I'm the Father and I love you. Come to me. Come to me. That's not to say he doesn't put his hand over things or sometimes remove it. And I'm of the opinion that he has removed his hand from America. Look around. You'll see the effects of it. But he's not dealing in wrath right now. That's to come. He dealt in wrath during the Old Testament. Wiping out Sodom and Gomorrah. He dealt in pure wrath with Sodom and Gomorrah. Wiped it off the face of the earth with fire. So much so that when she turns around to just look back at it, he turns her into salt, kills her. He hated that place so much, he had good reason to. But he doesn't deal in wrath anymore. He deals in grace with each and every one of us. We don't have to make sacrifices anymore. We don't have to go to the temple and here's the glorious thing. You and I are allowed in the Holy of Holies. There was one place where humans were not allowed except for one human one day a year. That was the Holy of Holies in the temple. Now, anyone that's accepted Christ could walk in there fearless. Right, I mentioned it, I think it was last week or the week before. You know, uh, uh, there's, a, there's a song called Boldly I Approach, and it's just that. Boldly I approach your throne. I don't have to, Jesus God, do you mind? It's like the, how, what I think of it. I don't even know how old this movie is, but it's Oliver Twist. And in the movie, 
the, uh, our, our titular character wants more porridge sludge and walks up to the headmaster person and just goes, please, sir, may I have some more? And then the guy freaks out. It's funny. We like to do it in my house, my family's house, you know. I won't do the more that he does right now because it would be way too loud. That's okay. But we don't have to approach Jesus like, oh, God, can I please have some more? No, you can watch in and you can go, Father, by your grace, because it's not because of us. Don't misunderstand me that we can just be like, hey, Jesus, give me whatever I want. No, no, no. But I don't have to be trembling and, and fearful. I can say, Father, can we have this? I can be in your presence. Or, Father, I can praise you right here, right now. Because it's no longer about the law. It's about grace. Now, he continues on there. Uh, in verse 23, and he says, To the general assembly in the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. What is all this stuff? Well, the church of the firstborn are New Testament believers. They're the firstborn in Christ. Old Testament believers are in heaven. Let's make that clear. They didn't, have, they didn't go to hell or something like that. You know, Moses is in heaven. All right. But they are not the firstborn of Christ. That's the church. They are, however, the spirits of the righteous. Those are the Old Testament believers. From Moses and Abraham down to the, the, the lowliest commoner that believed in God and followed the law and such. I tend to think that I, God probably had some leniency at times. Not in terms of, well, you sin, but that's okay. But, you know, he gave them the law some people followed it, some people didn't. If you followed it and you kept up with it and you, and you um, did the burnt offerings and stuff like that, especially the once a year when you had the remission of sins burnt offering, I think you made it. Because it was still back then. We, we like to say, right, we like to say, oh, it's all about the heart, and it is. I think it applied back then as well. Jesus didn't change his mind about what mattered, right? We read it in the, in the, I think it's Isaiah, but it might be one of the minor prophets, where he talks about, listen, I see your feasts and your festivals, and they disgust me because none of you actually have a care. You're, not, you're doing it to do it. So I believe there are many, 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 many thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Old Testament believers. And they're there as well. And it says, right, you've come to the Mount of Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, and so on and so forth. This is where you have come. Church, I'm here to tell you this morning, you don't stand before Mount Sinai if you've accepted Christ. If you haven't accepted Christ, there's a mountain enveloped in a cloud, quaking, filled with smoke and thunder and lightning, waiting for you. Where you will see God in all of his glory and also all of his wrath. But if you've accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, when you get there, you will see the heavenly city, Mount Zion, filled with New Testament believers who have gone before you, the Old Testament believers who have gone before you, angels, so much more. And while it will be awe-inspiring, my, my, um, uh, one of my mentors, Jeff, used to tell me I should never use the word awesome. 
Because there's only one thing that should make you in awe, and that's God. So if you're talking about anything other than him, you should not use the word awesome. Do I think he took it a little too far? Probably. But I really liked his sentiment. It was awesome in 2008 when Brad Litch struck out of Last Ray to win the World Series for the Phillies. It was awesome in 2017 when a Tom Brady pass got batted down in the end zone and the Philadelphia Eagles won a World Series. Super Bowl, thank you. I was still thinking about the Phillies. It was awesome in 1913. What? No. By the way, so, so at the funeral yesterday, I read off a bunch of things about what happened in 1913. How many of you are currently wearing a zipper? Put your hand in the air. I'm serious. Put your hand in the air. Have a zipper on. 1913 zippers were invented. Stainless steel in 1913. A car cost $500. Milk was six, oh no, bread was six cents, excuse me, milk was 36 cents. I'll still pay that today if I could, right? My little tangent. Here's the thing, those things are awesome, right? I, I look at them and I go, wow, that's awesome. Seeing my wife walk down the aisle was awesome. It will not compare to when I stand before Mount Zion, and that will truly, truly be awesome. Right, we sing the song. We haven't done it in a little bit, but we sing the, the song. I can only imagine. What are we going to do? Will I be? Will I kneel? Will I stand? Will I sing? Shout? Whatever. I don't really care what I do, because it's just going to be awe-inspiring. My prayer is that you will be there with me, standing before Mount Zion, fearful because of God and because He is awe and holy and righteous, but not fearful of where you're going. Not fearful because you see his wrath. We live in an age that is pretty much okay with Mount Zion because they don't have to see it yet. It's our job to show them Mount Zion and say, but look, you could see this instead. And that's the key. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you this morning. We praise you this morning that we can sing, that we can laugh, that we can learn, that we can have fellowship, that we can read your word. Father, I ask that you would help us to understand even better the relationship between the law and grace because they are they are not diametrically opposed, though we often try to make them that. But help us to understand that we're not under the law anymore. We're under grace. And because of that, we need to share it with everyone that we meet. Father, we praise you. It's in the name of your Son that we pray. Amen and amen.